0: Oliver Queen's whole approach to life was a last resort. I'm Eddie Webb, and today we're going to cover the Brotherhood and the Fist crossover, uh, which is Green Arrow's issues 134-135, Detective Comics issue seven thirty three, 723, Robin 55, and Nightwing 23, here on Speechless. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of my Green Arrow exploration. And uh, this is an interesting diversion because um, the Green Arrow in the 90s wasn't really Oliver Queen. Um, in fact, uh, a, a good chunk of the 90s Green Arrow uh, was in fact uh, um, his son Connor uh, and I debated trying to find maybe uh, a story that's close in the nineties, but still over clean, but really um, uh, there was a strong push to kind of uh, get Connor to be the, the next green arrow. And that's one thing I've been noticing as I learn more about DC is that DC's actually really good at the, this whole idea of legacy. Like uh, um, Barry Allen was the flash but also, Wally West is the Flash, and they both have equal validity to the Flash title. You know, there's been several Green Lanterns, there's been several Robins, so uh, uh, Marvel does tends to keep the same character in perpetuity, and, and DC certainly goes back and forth, like you know, kill off Hal Jordan, then bring Hal Jordan back. So I mean, it's not like either company's committed to this gimmick. Uh, But DC does kind of promote these characters who inherit a mantle or a legacy a bit more than Marvel in my experience so far. So while we're not talking about Oliver Queen specifically, I think it's good to talk about his son, uh, Connor Hawk, both because he is the greener of the 90s, but also a lot of Connor's story is him trying to understand who Ollie was and much like with uh, Wally West a lot of people will talk about the previous person who had that title around the new character so I think we're still going to get some insights into how other characters perceived Oliver Queen but quickly kind of how did we get to here Um, so uh, basically uh, right right about a few years before this um, run Oliver Queen's having some trouble as, as Green Arrow, so he decides to leave Seattle. If you remember our last episode, he moved to Seattle at the start of his ongoing series. Now he he's, uh, uh, leaves Seattle after Black Canary ends uh, the relationship. Uh, so he heads to the Ashram Monastery uh, on a journey he once went to uh, over a decade ago. So he loses his costume, he shaves his head, shaves his beard, concentrates, kind of figuring himself out to get some inner peace. Uh, But instead, who he finds is a young man named Connor Hawk, who is his son, although Oliver doesn't know it at the time. So he's there for six months, and Oliver teaches Connor aspects of himself, his beliefs, and and his thoughts on on the the role, as it were, of of Green Arrow. Um, And uh, Ollie's kind of ambivalent about the term hero in, in this explanation. Uh, and so they, they, they become friends, they become roommates, um, and uh, he uses archery and his philosophy to kind of help this kid who's struggling in the monastery. Uh, but soon afterwards, there's an assassin that's coming to kill him. Uh, he and Connor defeat the assassin, uh, but the assassin commits suicide. So Oliver Queen, of course, wants to investigate who's coming after him. Um, he runs. He talks to a man named Eddie Fires, uh, who becomes very, very important in this series. Um, so Connor goes with him. Uh, they meet up with Eddie Fires. They have a few adventures. And during all of this, Connor's trying to find the right moment to tell Ollie that he knows that he's Oliver's son. Uh, but uh, Hal Jordan gets possessed by Parallax, which is part of a huge event in the 90s um, uh, about how Jordan being corrupted by the power of the Green Lantern Ring. Uh, And so um, Parallax gets a hold of Oliver first and tells him that Connor is his son. Uh, So Ollie gets paranoid because he thinks that Connor is trying to plot something because he didn't mention it earlier. Uh, So they confronts him. They part on bad terms. And then Oliver's killed in an explosion while he's trying to save Metropolis from a terror group who's trying to off a mutagenic bomb. Uh, mutagenic bombs are a, a plot device that happened a couple of times in DC where basically if it goes off, it scrambles, changes, removes, and sometimes adds powers to people. Uh, so uh, Oliver's is never found. Connor tries to keep hope alive that his father's still around, uh, but then time passes and he comes to accept his his father's death. Uh, so he takes on the mantle of Green Arrow after Oliver dies. Uh, again, another reason why I kind of wanted to focus on Connor is because uh, around this time is also Grant Morrison's renowned JLA run. Uh, he, they really reinvent the JLA in the 90s and a lot of modern comic De- decompression and the kind of more cinematic approach to comic book storytelling really stems from Morrison's JLA run. It, it, it's not the only thing that's happening, but it is one of the biggest points where storytelling changes from the, the, the bronze Age to the modern age. Uh, so Connor is the green lantern of that justice league. Uh, we're, we're following him a little past that point. Uh, but from, a uh, Math standpoint, um, Oliver's been dead for several years now. I mean, so the, the time he died has been several years in real world time. So, the, he had mid-90s. Now it's the late 90s. Uh, so, um, the other thing about this time period, which I think is, is good representation, is that uh, the 90s com- were right at the cusp of the comics collapse. Comics were suddenly huge in the 90s. A lot of that stemmed around uh, the X-Men specifically, but that popularity and boom had benefits to lots of other comics. But one of the things that Marvel noticed with the X-Men is that people were willing to buy more comics if a story crossed comic lines. And once you bought a comic in a different line, there's a reasonable chance that people would stay with that comic, which means they're buying more comics. So, what started as is kind of a cross promotion technique became very standard in the nineties. Uh, I mean, there were certainly crossovers before this time period, but they were usually for either a specific story purpose, or there were kind of a specific creator who wanted to get this thing, or it was, it was a relatively contained event. We're now at a point where crossovers are really standard; they they're 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 very common. And uh, this is actually a good example of a reasonably tight crossover. There's only five issues. And also it's the same writer in all five issues, Chuck Dixon, which is usually a surprise. A lot more times uh, crossovers are just one writer kind of giving advice or an editor telling a group of writers they had to write within a certain constraint to make success, particularly when those crossovers were much more editorially mandated than creatively mandated. Uh, This is one where uh, Chuck Dixon seemed to have a particular idea, and it made sense to cross it over into three of the the Batman books at the time. So uh, this is a a better example of what the ideal of a 90s crossover is like. But as we'll kind of go into, um, it's still a bit ropey. Uh, So we'll start with um, issue uh, 134, Uh, the writer is Chuck Dixon. The penciler is Doug Braithwaite, inked by Robin Riggs, lettered by John Constanza, colored by Lee Loveridge, and edited by Darren Vincenzo. Uh, After he was defeated by Green Arrow, the Silver Monkey returned to his cult, the Brotherhood of the Monkey Fist, in shame. His sensei is more than displeased and wants his followers to take vengeance not only on Connor Hawk, but on all similar costumed crime fighters as well. A little later, Master Jensen and Eddie Fryers are confronted by members of the Monkey Cult, but Friars just pulls his two guns out and shoots his enemies down. They tell the confused Jensen that he will try to find Connor. Green Arrow is in front of a house outside of Gotham City. He is looking for some high-tech weaponers with connections to his stepfather and is more than surprised to find Batman in the house as well. Both heroes enter the house, which looks totally abandoned. underneath the building, they discover a huge cave which is stocked with military equipment of the Cobra Cult. But all Cobra agents present are dead, killed by members of the Monkey Cult, who will now also attack both Green Arrow and Batman. The heroes are able to fight back successfully, but then a monkey activates the self-destruction system of the Cobra base to be continued. And the first thing you'll notice is this story moves a lot faster than the previous years we've seen. Like the 60s, one issue of comic had a lot of story in it. Um, and then I talked about how in the 70s and 80s, that kind of got spread out a bit more. One issue was being more of the standard, occasionally two or three issues. Um, but still, there was a fairly dense amount of story. Like when I, when I did the uh, Longbow Hunters, granted there was double issues, but even then there was a lot of story in each of those double issues. Uh, now we're looking at that, again, much more uh, – uh, decompressed storytelling uh, uh, there's a lot less words on the page um, there's a lot more uh interaction between panels something that would have been one panel with three or four exchanges now gets spread across several panels uh so we're seeing definitely a lot less time. The stories are still being told very well. It's just that the actual, if you're just reading the words, it goes by much faster. And that's going to, that trend's going to continue to the modern day. The other thing is, again, we're in late nineties here. So ninjas and martial arts are, are are very, very popular right now. Uh, They were also popular in comics in the early seventies. They've come back around in a new way, but frankly, ninjas are hot. Uh, So they're going to, seen a lot of them in in a lot of comics right now, and so this is a a great example of that. Which means that uh, cultural sensitivity is not going to be great, but you really have to think these are not meant to be representations of actual uh, belief systems. These are definitely comic book ninjas and comic book hidden societies. So it's much more racial rule than, say, you know, actual like Tibetan Buddhism or anything like that. Uh, as far as uh, the visuals, um, uh, you see that we, we are now pretty much completely away from the the, the grid. Uh, the layouts are much more fluid than they were in the previous eras. And here, again, we see that kind of stacking that we saw uh, on the Longbow Hunters. But as opposed to that being kind of a, a, a huge innovation, a, a visual flourish, now it's much more this is just how comics are done. So rather than those stacking panels being a way to kind of show a point or to make it feel like we're being drawn into the realism of the world, just about every page has those on. And the, the overlaps are very, very tiny. Um, so a good example is uh, on page uh, three, four, and five. Uh, each of those pages has some overlay panels, but you're missing very little of the actual art here. So it's not done to kind of provide depth and uh, overlapping of it. It's just this is just how comics are done now, uh, particularly on page five, where you are combining those overlapping panels with a slant slanted panels, and th- there's there's a lot of dynamism happening on the page and how the page is structured but it's been several decades now these are becoming standard ways of st- of organizing and structuring comics and so there's much more confidence here it's it you could tell that the artist isn't necessarily trying anything new this is just the way comics are done uh, and page eight as uh, a great example is that there's one inset panel on the author is a full splash page and so you see a lot of the a. Uh, uh, images of the panel like the barn and the the arrow kind of sitting behind that inset panel. So there's still that sense of depth, but almost all the action that the inset panel is obscuring is, is dead space. So, I mean, it's, it's a very natural flow of reading that splash page and then moving over to the inset. So it, it's not designed to overwhelm you or to make you go, wow. Like in the previous one, this is just the way that comics are told. I keep saying that, but I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 it's really hard to articulate how much comics evolved visually in 12 years. It went from this is stunning to, oh, this is just a normal comic. Uh, you'll also see coloring-wise, um, you're getting a lot more of the color gradation that we saw before. But whereas last time it was painted, now we're moving into the era of computer color. So, uh, there's, there, there are no flat colors here, but you can almost see kind of where the color separated and then the almost, um, Photoshop brush marks on, on like the, the black costume of Batman. Uh, also a side note, um, this is near the end of the kind of 80s Batman movie era, but still Batman's black rubber costume has made an impact culturally. And so you're seeing a lot more of that style of costume rather than the, the blue costume that we saw, uh. Even in the eighties, but like the green of oh, the Silver Monkey's shirt, there's a kind of a lightish green at the top and dark green at the bottom. Um, we're seeing shading is not just inks, but also uh, different colors and how the light hits the different parts of the body. So uh, computer color is definitely changing uh, how things look and are organized. Uh, but then, other than that, yeah, let's move on to uh, Detective Comics seven twenty three. Uh, It was written by Chuck Dixon, penciled by Alex Malove, inked by Bill Reinhold, littered by John Costanza, colored by Gloria Vasquez, and edited by Scott Peterson. Using a tank, Batman and Green Arrow were just able to avoid dying in the detonation of the Cobra Underground Base caused by members of the Brotherhood of the Fist. And as both heroes wade through the snow, they are surrounded by even more of the bronze monkeys. Meanwhile, Robin and Nightwing are patrolling through Gotham City, which is still heavily damaged due to a massive earthquake. By accident, they run into members of the monkey cult. A fight begins, but rather quickly, Robin and Nightwing get rid of their opponents. Batman and Green Arrow also do not need to make their enemies run away from them, but the heroes have to withstand a snow avalanche. They does not need long to make their enemies run away from them, but the heroes have to withstand a snow avalanche. Uh, Robin and Nightwing run into Eddie Fires, who also has the problems with the bronze monkeys. Actually, the monkey cults seem to attack all kinds of heroes with backgrounds in martial arts. Nightwing and Robin move on to visit Oracle to get some more information. Barbara tries to contact Black Canary, but her partner also got into a fight with the Bronze Monkeys until she eventually received help from the Bronze Tiger. Sensei of the Monkey Cult believe that Batman and Green Arrow are dead, but the third monkey who is being held in a cell knows better. He thinks only he can succeed in that regard. Uh, so uh, we have a different uh, artist here, different art team here. Uh, and we're going you see that there's a lot less of the angled slanted panels than we saw in the previous issue, but we're still seeing the overlays, the the color uh, color or sorry, the computer coloring. Um, one thing that's interesting about uh, specifically this one, I think I think it's the or maybe Stan Wal who did this., uh, but some of the panels have a much heavier, thick black outline, uh, but it's not every single panel. Usually it's just the inset panels, and even then not every one. Uh, So it's nice to kind of draw the eye to show kind of uh, put a heavier weight on action. Also in the avalanche, uh, when at the avalanche scene, you start to notice something that is common in a lot of 90s comics, which is that backgrounds disappear. Uh, and in the avalanche scene it makes sense because there's lots of white uh, so they have a white background and uh, with all the snow around that makes a degree of sense but then you see like beneath it look at page 10 for example the middle panel has that white out but then the panel beneath it where it's just uh, Connor and Batman talking there's just purple in the sky and if you go to the next page there's purple in the sky again Uh, so backgrounds are used much more tactically I feel Uh, if you go to like the, uh, Gotham city scenes, you'll occasionally see a a nice, uh, panel like at the bottom of page 12 where there's lots, lots of buildings. And then when you get into like the fight on the building, uh, it's just kind of, blank orange sky in the background and then again you see a building in the background again so it's not like backgrounds are completely missing but they're much more strategic and I suspect some of this is to save time because again comics were being so popular in the 90s there was such a demand for comics that artists were frankly just trying to crank out pages as fast as they could and it's also a lot of artists got their start in 90 because there was just such a need for more artists. So much more innovative styles uh, were happening. The, the house style concept was fading away. The look between these two issues is, is pretty distinct. Uh, uh, we don't have one artist doing every single issue. The you know, only, only constancy we have across these is, is Chuck Dixon as the writer. But I do want to point out that there are some interesting coloring choices. We're moving into an era where coloring can kind of start to tell a a story, a bit of itself. Uh, So, like we have the um, fight scenes. We move from the avalanche to the fight scenes in Gotham City, starting at page twelve. There's a lot of browns and oranges in the background, kind of like give a sense of of, of early morning, if you will. And then when, by the time we get to fifteen, we're talking about some of the other martial artists. A lot of them have distinctive red and gold costumes. Uh, and we see that the actual colors of the backgrounds also tend towards kind of peachy and gold. Uh, so it's kind of helping to say that all of these diff- disparate heroes that are being attacked, there is a kind of commonality between them. And it is martial arts. But the color is also showing that there's a, a commonality between these characters. Um, uh, we have Black Widow, or sorry, Black Widow. <laughs> we have Black Canary in yet another costume. Um, it's it's similar to uh, her classic costume, except for she's wearing fishnets. Um, we're definitely firmly in the uh, women are always in kind of pinup poses stage. So, a lot of the uh, sexism uh, constraints and concerns that superhero comics draws the '90s is certainly uh, a, a example of how that is ramped up to 11 Uh, men are also done in sexy poses, but they're not the same kind of sexy poses. That's a very much male gaze versus the female gaze in terms of what's considered to be sexy. Uh, So uh, uh, it's definitely objectifying both men and women, but it's all done through kind of a male perspective rather than a a female perspective. And also uh, introduction, interesting introduction of um, bronze tiger Uh, bronze tiger I don't know much about his history but I know that he was a character in the Suicide Squad run in the 80s with Ostrander. Um so it's interesting to see him here because there's some he's making some references uh, particularly in the next issue to events that happened in that Suicide Squad comic. So we're definitely seeing a strong continuity and some relative deep cut continuity for for DC here. Uh, which is which is frankly interesting to see. So let's go to uh, Robin 55. It's written by Chuck Dixon, uh, penciled by William Rosado, inked by Stan Welch, lettered uh, by Tim Harkins, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Jordan B. Gorfunko and Dennis O'Neill. Batman and Green Arrow survive the snow avalanche, but the blizzard-like conditions are still threatening their lives. Batman is able to call his monster truck to him, so he has a monster truck, um, and then they use that to make their way back to Gotham City. Uh, meanwhile, the sensei of the Brotherhood of the Monkey Fist is hiring Deathstroke. The mercenary takes, will take care of Eddie Fires, who uses his guns to take down the martial arts experts in the Monkey Cult. Robert and Green Arrow are out in the streets of Gotham looking for members of the Monkey Cult, but they run into some less challenging enemies. Batman visits Oracle, who tells him that the Monkey Cult is attacking martial arts experts all over the globe. Batman would like to know more about their sources, but Oracle remains tight-lipped regarding that issue. After Batman left, Barbara contacts Black Canary, who is on her way to the headquarters of the Monkey Cult, but Diana does not tell her partner that she is accompanied by the Bronze Tiger. A little later, Batman, Nightwing, and Green Arrow find Eddie Fires, and Batman warns him about using those guns again. Fires tells the heroes the Monkey Cult consists of different schools and disciplines, some of which are only mastered by very few members like the Monkey Cult, or by Silver Monkey, sorry. Another special member of the cult is a female named Paper Monkey. This woman is targeting Robin and willing to kill fellow monkey cult members if they get in her way. Uh, so something I forgot to mention in one of the previous uh, issues, but it's worth talking about here because it's a plot relevant thing here is the increase in violence in these comics, specifically gun violence. One of Batman's kind of defining traits is that he refuses to use guns, which is interestingly not always been the case. In his earliest uh, appearances in the 30s, he actually did use guns and used them pretty regularly. And certainly some seminal comics like uh, uh, the Dark Knight Returns, his reluctance around guns is kind of like, I won't use a gun but I'll use a tank. So it's like, where is the line really drawn? So that's, But that's kind of a separate point. Uh, these I just checked as I was reading through here, um, and all of these still have the comics code seal on them. Uh, Marvel had pretty much stopped using the comics code around this time. DC was still committed to it, but the fact that gun violence was being so visibly presented by heroic characters is a pretty big change from the early comics code. So the comics code clearly either evolved or just frankly wasn't being enforced very well. Considering the comics code was created by the comic companies and their self-policing agency, it's entirely possible they just simply weren't enforcing it anymore. And really, the Comics Code kind of goes away pretty soon after this. By the time the 21st century comes around, the Comics Code isn't really a factor anymore. Uh, another thing that's, that's uh, interesting about this time period is that um, we're also looking at one of the problems of 90s crossovers. I did say this is a good example of it, but also it's a a good negative example in that there are sometimes so many subplots from the different comics is all happening that if you're just following your comic, there's maybe very little of the story you're following in this particular issue. So this is an issue of Robin, but Robin doesn't really show up much in it. Uh, Again, this happens a lot in X-Men to the point where uh, Uncanny X-Men and the X-Men comic, which are two separate comics, were so interconnected that you basically had to buy them as one series. It was constantly bouncing back and forth between the two every two weeks, and it really should have been just one bi-weekly comic rather than two separate comics. Uh, It was that intertwined and consistently intertwined. We're also at the era of Superman is doing this pretty heavily. Um, This is called the Triangle Era by some, where um, on the cover of all four of the Superman comics, there'll be a little triangle telling you which part of this year's arc it was a part of. So it was explicitly a weekly comic uh, that followed all of Superman's adventures. And sometimes those were relatively disconnected. You could kind of just follow action comics if you wanted to, for example... But really, it was a fifty two week Superman comic every year. Uh, so it's it's kind of an interesting era because there's so much crossover interconnectivity, and it can make for very rich storytelling, but it can also be a nightmare to follow. Um, and this middle part of this crossover is a really representative example of how that kind of heavy interconnectivity can really Damp down and make it hard to follow a particular title. If you're just interested in following Robin, for example, um, visually um, uh, again we have a uh, different art styles. Uh, you may have noticed again, like the house style thing is kind of fading away. So th- these characters look a distinctive. Th- different. They're still recognizable in terms of, of the costuming is the same and whatnot, but uh, Batman's colored differently. The the faces of Batman color Connor look different. The, the art style is different. The, the panel layout is different. So visually, these issues are just not connecting the same way that, again, like Longbow Hunters did. Uh, but again, Longbow Hunters had one art team throughout all of it. This is five, four different art teams. So we're seeing much stronger a uh, disconnection between the two. Uh, another kind of almost frustrating point is that uh, Deathstroke is brought in. Um, Deathstroke was a longtime villain of Robin in the Teen Titans comic, uh, which would have been about roughly 15 years before this, to almost 20 years before this. And yet there's almost no intersection between Deathstroke and Robin in this issue. It may happen in future issues. I haven't read ahead, um, but it was an opportunity to kind of, this was in some ways Robin's villain. And again, Robin's not in this issue long enough to even connect with that character. Uh, We do some interesting coloring choices on pages 10 and 11 with uh, Batman talking to Oracle where Oracle's always colored in green uh, to kind of reflect the glow off of the computers. And it's an interesting touch to kind of make her stand out on the page because the rest of the page is like, you know, Batman dark and it's it's a brick buildings, lots of ruddy Browns. Um, but not only is, uh, Barbara Gordon and her wheelchair colored in green, but also even her computers at times are colored in green. So it helps to kind of set off, uh, her from the rest of the scene. Uh, I think it's taken a little too far. Cause we go into, uh, the next page where uh, she's talking to, uh, black Canary, uh, the green kind of persists, and so like the reason to keep us separated don't seem as necessary. But I like the idea again that they're at least trying to tell a story to a degree and provide some characterization through color choices. That this is a woman who is primarily uh, uses computers as her source of information, as her, her method of fighting crime. And so by using that green color to help sell that was well, still a, it's a cool choice, even if maybe didn't quite land the way it's supposed to. Uh, again, we have uh, the guns coming out all this time. Batman stops bef- before uh, they get used. There's definitely also, um, I don't know anything about Fires aside from these five issues, but it definitely looks like he was meant to be some kind of breakout character in the 90s. I don't know much about him. Out, I'm not writing about this. Again, this is my only exposure to him, but he's in every issue and he's portrayed by everyone as is kind of Loose cannon badass that everyone respects but is also worried about, and the heroes don't trust him entirely. Um, but he's absolutely committed to protecting Connor. I'm thinking that given by what the, the self leading up to this, that I think Fires is primarily a Connor Hawk support character, so that probably is why he's threading through this. But I mean, it the whole story is based around how this just guy with two guns is apparently respected and or concerning to a large number of the characters throughout this crossover. So I found that particularly interesting. Um, And then the whole paper monkey thing, uh, uh, there's a throwing line in either this issue or next issue about the rock, paper, scissors. That's apparently where the paper monkey idea is coming in, but the rock and paper parts aren't really sold very well. So it's, it's, it's not, quite clear why someone called Paper Monkey is so terrifying. Uh, But let's let's go ahead to Nightwing 23 and see if we can figure that out. Uh, It is written by Chuck Dixon, is penciled by Scott McDaniel, inked by Carl Story, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Roberta Tews, and edited by Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. Uh, The death of dozens of members of the Monkey Cult is being investigated by the Gotham City Police. Nightwing, Robin, and Green Arrow observe the crime scene and hear that the Brotherhood members were killed by someone using his bare hands. As the heroes think about potential suspects, they are confronted by the Bamboo Monkey. Nightwing is surprisingly struck down by the Bamboo Monkey, but the Green Arrow takes over and defeats his opponent very efficiently. Quickly after that, they move on to the Oracle, who is worried because she lost contact with one of her operatives some time ago. Meanwhile, Batman meets with Commissioner Gordon and tells him that he and his partners take care of the Monkey Cult and the Mysterious Killer. Somewhere in Asia... Bat Cleary and Green Bronze Tiger are approaching the Temple of the Brotherhood of the Fist, but they are being watched closely and it does not take long until they are overwhelmed and imprisoned by Deathstroke and the cult, but help is coming their way by Eddie Fires. Batman, Nightwing, Robin, and Green Arrow continue their search for the monkey cult and the killer. They finally discover them in the crumbled Davenport Center, where the female paper monkey is again busy killing members of her own brotherhood, and when she takes off her mask, it reveals to be none other than Lady Shiva. Uh, so, um Lady Shiva is I believe a Batman primary character. Uh she is again female ninja martial artist thing, so peak nineties character concept. Uh um she she's you know, generic Asian assassin. Uh, uh, and, and again, this is '90s comics written by Americans, mostly white dudes at the time. So, Asia is just kind of one place at, at this point. It's 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 not great, but it is a sign of the times. Is that that, that there's definitely an attempt to try to bring other cultural influences in, and they're just not doing as great of a job as they could. Uh, oh, but that being said, the splash page on um, page one of all of the corpses on the ground is really interesting because it's it's – first of all, it's visually interesting. It, it, it's just kind of an array of people on the ground, and they're they're edged out in red. And it's an interesting balance because it's blood. I mean, it's very clearly meant to be blood, but it's not pooling necessarily. It's It's almost outlining them. So it's an interesting dodge around the comics code, maybe, um, or just kind of a visual interpretation. Um, there's one uh member of the cult who's been shoved through a brick wall. Uh, and so the bricks caved in, but there's no blood around that area. So it, it it's it evokes blood more than visually represents blood. So you get almost kind of an impressionistic idea that there's this area's just blood soaked, even though. Not actually what's on the page. So it's interesting kind of how they're threading this needle. They're, they're definitely making these comics more violent. Uh, but exactly how they depict the violence is very strategic. So I find that fascinating. Uh but again, we have a different uh visual style. Scott McDonald McDaniel. Keep on saying McDonald. Scott McDaniel is uh, definitely a very different artist from the other artists we've seen. Um much more kind of almost a cartoony style. Uh, you can get notes of, of almost like Batman the Animated Series in terms of how the faces and, and the stances are. A little bit of Kirby in there too. Uh, but there's still connectivity. Like that. I and mean, nothing else, the coloring of the costumes and the coloring of the clothing is carrying over to things still follow along the story. It's very easy to follow along. Uh, but again, it's something that how our reading choices have changed, it was very much believed in earlier parts of the 20th century that comics needed to look relatively similar, particularly in things like crossovers, so that people could feel like they're reading the same comic. And now, by necessity, uh, 90s readers have gotten used to the fact that art changes between issues and, frankly, sometimes even in the middle of an issue. Uh, If there weren't enough artists to get a book done in time, it was more important to get the book out. And fill-ins were becoming less and less desirable as a solution. So sometimes they just get artists to just draw some of the missing pages, and so those art styles wouldn't necessarily match up. And so readers are just getting used to these almost jarring styles of art changes. But in in some cases, we have some like like the, the lettering is pretty consistent. It's it's mostly John Costanza, although Tim Harkins did the ones on Robin. Uh so at least the lettering is pretty consistent. And also while it's different colorists, um that computer coloring does help to more homogenize. And also uh, this is a case where the missing backgrounds, I think, also help keep things connected because then there's less stuff in the background to jar. And and also we're just setting up this this art style of we're not always going to show you the backgrounds. Um, But sometimes it seems like that's more strategic than anything else. Uh, So look at page seven, for example, Uh, the fight with um, one of the monkeys and uh, Nightwing and Green Arrow. The background is missing at the top panel. And then as as the next three panels go down, the blue starts to seep in. We see clouds actually kind of almost added in. And then the buildings in the area start to come into the background until eventually you see more of the, the structure of the, of the fight going on. So the background kind of almost creeps in as the action goes on. And then on the next page, there's uh, four panels of action uh, and, and with jagged. the panels are slanted with jagged edges on them. And those panels are all colored in shades of yellow and orange as they fade through. So Again, we're still keeping that kind of almost impressionistic coloring, impressionistic action. And I think that helps to kind of keep things somewhat consistent. But on the flip side, if you go to the next page with Oracle there, that whole her always being colored in green is completely gone because we have a different art team here. And they're not necessarily communicating on these small details. So it's close enough to keep continuity, but you you, you definitely can't avoid the fact that these are different art teams doing different things um but we do have some like more things like uh, the heavy black border panels are are, are coming you know, coming and going so there's certainly some if not house style at least maybe shared thoughts on techniques between artists possibly they are being inspired by each other and whatnot and then the last page uh again we have lady shiva holding a sword the swords covered in blood there's blood on the stone but it's not a large amount it's it's enough to convey this is blood but it's not buckets of it It, it, it's it's enough to to say yes this is a bloody sword but it's not just soaked or caked and there's no blood on her outfits or anything so how the blood gets portrayed is much more like a term artistic than necessarily representative so you're seeing a trend here uh so let's, let's kind of finish this off. Um, Green Arrow, 135. It's written by Chuck Dixon, uh, penciled by Bug Braithwaite. And this is the same team as 134. So uh, Ink, by Robin Riggs, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Leon Lowridge, and edited by Darren Vincenzo. Uh, Green Arrow and Nightwing confront Lady Shiva. She hits Dick quickly, and then she starts to duel with Connor. Nightwing recovers, but he has to take care of some additional members of the Brotherhood of the Fist. Batman joins the fight a little later. Meanwhile, Eddie Fires has entered the temple of the monkey cult and starts a shootout with Deathstroke, but the mercenary misses how Fires plants a bomb on one of the temple's walls. He uses the explosion as diversion and is able to free Black Canary and Bronze Tiger. He also looks into the cell with a silver monkey in it, but has no intention to free him as well. The sensei of the brotherhood is not amused about Deathstroke's failure and thinks about renegotiating terms of their contract. In Gotham City, a long fight between Lady Shiva and Green Arrow nears its end. Shiva wants to kill Connor with the leopard blow, but Robin appears and asks Shiva to spare Green Arrow's life. Robin saved Shiva's life a little while ago and thus feels that she owes him a favor. Shiva agrees and leaves, but threatens Robin that their next encounter will result in the death of one of them. Even Batman seems impressed by the fact that Connor nearly beat Lady Shiva, but he warns Connor that now more martial arts experts were looking for him because Connor is number two in the business now and this is really uh it, it, this is the this is now we're back to putting green arrow's story forward and this is frankly yet another reinvention of green arrow because now he's a martial arts character and this really kind of cements that change uh there's uh well actually I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second Let me finish this issue first um so we have more of the kind of Lilo Bridge, uh natural coloring. There's still some impression stuff like uh, a page two um, where Connor's in shadow. Uh, he's colored primarily in blue, but his arrow is colored in green to kind of sell the, the green, green arrow. Keeping color and characterization consistent. Um, and I think that's that's important. But really, we're not the art is just it's blues and dark and purples when you're in chat. That's a pretty common way of selling that visually, but we do have like a, a, a pink backgrounds panel at one point. Um, so it's not entirely away from that. We just see one panel with background, just entirely blue. So we're seeing some of that change. Uh, or some of that, some of the consistency of how color works throughout. Um, there's actually a really good example of this on page 10, um, where, uh, Connor is fighting Shiva, and as he's coming exhausted, the colors slide from yellow more and more to red. Uh so the this spotlights of colors action seems like the artists maybe are influencing each other and how they approach that. Because we didn't see as much of that in the first issue. Uh the the fight with Connor, um, again, we're seeing like uh there's, there's blood around a like cut on his chest. There's, when he gets smacked by Shiva, there's blood coming out of his mouth, but it's colored black. And this is more consistently the way that you have illustrated violence in the past, the comic books, is that you would where you would have blood at by using black instead of red, that was going to be an acceptable way to get around the comics code. But yet if you see um, things like uh, when Deathstroke is uh, struggling it back up, there's red there's all over his chest. So it's not consistent um there's blood on Shiva's face it is colored black but you know there's blood on the ground underneath Connor when he's getting up so the red black the divide is a little more inconsistent here um and Batman's arguments of uh Connor is the number two best fighter in the world there there's a lot of there's a lot on back there uh but basically it comes down to I kind of read it as The monkey cult believes he is number two. Not necessarily that he is the second best fighter in the world. Because, I mean, Batman presumably is up there. Um, You know, a lot of the Bat family are very good at martial arts. There are lots of martial arts characters. We established Bronze Tiger is is ranked very high up there. So you have this kind of almost seeing the problem of the 90s where you have so many characters who are influenced by martial arts and you use martial arts as part of their skill set. And they can't all be the best in the world. Uh, and so, like, at some point in time, there's going to be so these characters it should be, like, you know, top 100, top 1,000. Uh, but in order to make them interesting, you inflate their their values. So it's... it's uh, Specifically, it's like, you're in the number two slot behind Shiva. So that's a way to kind of hedge it. It's like, on that particular ranking, Shiva was at the top, or is at the top, and Khanna Drake pleased her. And since Shiva is a Robin character. It looks like she's floating in and out between Robin and the Green Arrow title. Kind of makes sense to frame it in that structure. Uh, but uh, kind of, my, the point I was going to make earlier is that, uh, again, this is uh, very much a reinvention of, of Green Arrow again. I mean, in this case, a complete reboot. in The fact that this, this is a character that it's a brand new person who's holding the you Arrow know, thing. And it's like, now he's a martial artist and um, he has, you know, he's uh, biracial and he has a strong monastery, martial arts background. All the stuff that wasn't necessarily part of Green Arrow's more kind of blue collar working ethic. Uh, so when I started this, I said, from this, we can kind of get a sense of who Ollie was. And what I kind of glossed over in all this is that Batman and uh, Connor had a lot of conversations about Oliver. Because really, while Connor knew Oliver Queen and Connor knew Oliver Queen was Green Arrow and Oliver Queen trains Connor to be Green Arrow, Connor is trying to figure out what Green Arrow is. And this is the thing I was going to kind of loop back to is that there's actually a really good couple of issues in uh, Morrison's JLA run where Connor joins the Justice League and the Justice League are incapacitated, so Connor has to save them. It's a pretty common setup. I think it was the key was the main character. Uh, But one thing they did was uh, Connor comes across some of Oliver's old trick arrows, specifically kind of the punching Bag arrow and the Boomerang arrow. And one of the things that Connor says is like, only a madman could make these things actually work. He completely dismissed all of these trick arrows. And then the boxing glove arrow becomes like the thing that actually solves the problem. Uh, but Connor's still kind of dismissive of Oliver. And that's one piece of this in the sense that. Connor is trying to be the Green Arrow that the 80s version of Green Arrow told us he was. He's he's, he's focused on normal weaponry. Um, He's a tough fighter. He has strong uh, justice instincts. Uh, But at this point, there are writers who are coming in who grew up on the 70s and 60s versions of Green Arrow and want to start to bring that in. So, you know... Connor's kind of in this awkward place where he's natural outgrowth of you know the the Mike Grail Green Arrow for lack of a better term. This is a very specific slice of Green Arrow history that he's pulling from. And when we talk about those conversations between Batman and Connor, you know we have comments you know like like I said at the top of the episode about that was Batman's comment of Oliver Queen's whole approach to life was last resort. Oliver Queen threw himself into things he always put his life on the line at the drop of a hat, whereas Batman very much reserved that as, let's let's see if we can find a way to not do that. Uh, Connor's kind of in the middle of that, but still more than willing to kind of dive in. Uh, From this run and from my other brief experiences with Connor, he definitely seems like he's always on the back foot, Uh, but he is trying to make this whole Great Neuro thing work to honor his father, even though his relationship with his father is, for lack of a term, complicated. And as we saw with Oliver's view of Speedy, where you know he looked at Speedy as kind of almost his adopted son, Oliver kind of sucked at being a dad anyway, so it's not surprising that there's this conflict here. Uh, but there have been a lot of conversations throughout these issues between Batman and Connor about who Oliver is and we end up kind of this almost mythologized version of Oliver Queen of he's a hothead he dives in with basically nothing he makes these things work somehow and gets out ahead and ends up doing something but his personal life ends up being a shambles as a result he never had a steady relationship with Black Canary um, he never had a good relationship with either his adoptive or his real son. Uh, he's always alienating his friends. He's, he's very much iconoclast in that regard. Uh, so none of that is inconsistent with previous portrayals of him, but there's certainly kind of the kind of thing you say about someone who passed on. It's like you t- take the, the broad strokes of a person and you crystallize them. And so that's what's kind of happened here is that not only is Connor learning about these broad strokes uh, to try to um, present Oliver Queen as this mythologized version of himself, but also he's trying to find his own way inside of that legacy. Uh, and we, I saw a version of this. Um, I've been recently rereading uh, the Justice League Europe, which has Wally West on it as The Flash, and this is right after uh, Crisis Infinite Earth, where spoiler for a 30-plus-year-old comic, 40-year-old comic at this point, Um, but um, uh, the original Flash dies as a result of Crisis Infinite Earth. And so there was a running gag of Wally West constantly being compared to Barry Allen and not measuring up. The point where eventually Wally does blow up and kind of confront some people about this, this constant nagging uh, and, and they find a, a way through that. But one of the things that, that is the same kind of situation, like it's the, well, Barry always did this and Barry always did that and, did, you know? and And that's a natural thing to do. If someone is filling a role that someone you liked previously filled that role, it's easy to make that comparison. And so it's interesting to see Batman talking to Connor and Talking about Oliver in the context of it, the comparisons are natural. And to a degree, Connor invites them. He does want to actually know what Oliver was like. But I I don't think we actually learn much more about Oliver Queen in terms of who he was. We do kind of see how the DC universe views him. And what's interesting by doing the comics in this structure, in this way, is that it's really a synthesis of the three versions of Green Arrow we saw previously. Because really, we have not had a consistent version of Green Arrow between episodes. We had Batman knockoff in episode one. We had a goofy liberal in episode two. We had a gritty noir version in episode three. And now we have the son of one of those versions in episode four and the conversations that Batman have, you're, you're not getting much, but the general feels coming off is it's a little bit of all of those still heavily influenced by the latest version, because that's the one most of the readers are probably going to be familiar with, but there's shades of the trick arrows. There's shades of the, the, the weird extremist liberal on there. Um, they're, they're all still in that mix. And the idea that, these are not three different characters These are one character going through evolutions is an interesting take. And one that I think DC particularly is prone to do and to, to do reasonably well. Um, Marvel characters do absolutely evolve, but usually um, the version that we think of is the, the last presented version. So, Tony Stark prior to the first Iron Man movie is a pretty different character from Tony Stark we see now, but all references back to that previous Tony Stark are kind of shaped by that modern version. So, this is one where they're trying to take that version but still pull in the continuity and the references and the nuances of the previous versions and, and try to lump them together. Is it successful? I'm not entirely sure. Again, we don't have much to work with here, uh, but I think the next one we'll look at will be an interesting juxtaposition from that because we're... <laughs> to be honest, we're doing another reboot. Uh, but this time, uh, the reboot is going to be an explicit one. Um, it, it's it's Green Arrow Year 1, Issues 1 through 6. So we are going back to Green Arrow's origin that we kind of touched on in Longbow Hunters and doing a full six-issue miniseries of that time period. Uh, so... Once again, I have not read ahead. I don't know what that's like. Uh, but um, that I think it would be interesting to kind of look at the early 2000s, look at Green Arrow, and we're back to Oliver Queen again, um, and see now that we've been through this kind of Connor Hawk diversion and through that, an attempt to kind of synthesize all of the Oliver Queens, do we get an actual, genuine, synthesized version of Oliver Queen outside of that? So... That's uh, next time. Uh, Green Arrow Year One, issues one through six. Again, they're all on DC Infinite. Uh, so, if you want to talk to me about uh, Green Arrow and this increasingly fragmented view I'm having of Oliver Queen, you can find me online on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P U G S T E A T Y. You can find uh, my website at pugsteady.com, or you can find me hanging out in the Darker Hue Discord. Uh, and with that um, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am and I will see you next time